Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. Patient-centered, team-based approach in healthcare has been shown to not only improve the quality of healthcare, but also increase the satisfaction of patients and doctors alike. More than ever, COVID-19 has stressed the importance of each and everyone in the team, from housekeeping to technicians, front desk people, schedulers, APPs, nurses, medical assistants, and doctors. These teams play a pivotal role in both reducing the bio-burden of the disease and preventing its spread and transmission, both in the inpatient and outpatient settings. Taking care of COVID-19 infected patients, we also noted that certain populations like the Latinos, African-Americans, Pacific Islanders are disproportionately affected by the virus. For example, Hospitalization rates for Latinos are 4.5 times the rate among whites. In California alone, 39% are Latinos, but they make up 61% of COVID-19 cases. Latinos and African-American residents of the United States are three times more likely to become infected by the virus compared to the white population and are twice as likely to die from the virus as white individuals. It is therefore incumbent on all of us to understand the whys and advocate for changes to reduce this disparity. We are all aware now on how COVID-19 has affected every facet of our lives. Today's podcast is on how COVID-19 has changed the landscape of medicine. It's a huge topic. I'm bringing you to the trenches and explore how several colleagues had adjusted to the so-called new normal. So we have Kelly, and Kelly Sanderson is one of my favorite colleagues, and um, she is a nurse practitioner. She is board certified as a family nurse practitioner and an emergency nurse practitioner. And she completed her training at Georgetown University and worked in primary care and corporate health before joining Stanford in 2016. She is also a volunteer firefighter and an EMT in her community. So Kelly, welcome to our show. And I'm really honored to have you and have you and your experience uh, be shared with our listeners. So Kelly, I wanted to ask you, what is an APP? <laughs> an APP is a broad term. Uh, the term is an advanced practice provider. 
And what it's meant to designate are those providers uh, that don't, don't necessarily practice, have the training of a physician, but practice at an advanced degree in the healthcare system. So typically this means either a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner, or there's a couple of other advanced nursing roles like a, uh, a nurse anesthetist or uh, a clinical nurse specialist. Certainly, you know, it's been such a pleasure to work with you hand in hand. And I mean, we really truly learn from each other. We're so lucky that we have such a practice like that. So in terms of like COVID-19, Kelly, I know I I remember like early March, we were scrambling and uh, I I don't know with you, how did COVID-19 change uh, the way you practice? Uh, there were there were so many changes. I'm, I'm sure you remember very well. Uh, first and foremost was a very abrupt transition to uh, more of a telehealth based model of care than our inpatients. There was um, certainly a lot of concern that we were going to spread infection. That people may not know that they were infected, um, and we weren't sure what what a safe clinical practice looks like. So we we shifted to a lot of remote visits. As we sort of got a handle on sort of the breadth of the of the pandemic um, and some of the yeah. the risks we were facing, we were able to bring people back in into the clinic. But it's been slow and and sort of partial. Uh, we're also kind of getting acquainted with new things like PPE, uh, gowns and masks and face shields, uh, things that we uh, really hadn't been using, certainly not in an ambulatory setting, uh, for a very long time. And so learning, um, learning how, to, how to work in that sort of equipment was, was a big change. Yeah. So tell me how it feels, like in terms of how it changed your practice, like how do you express empathy and like we can't touch the patient, we don't shake hands anymore. Like when we do our face-to-face visit, how has that affected you? Oh, it's been, it's been tremendous. I am, um, I'm a hugger <laughs> and a toucher. And I, I, you know, I believe I, I like that connection with my patients. Uh, you know, you got to read the room. You can't go hug everybody, but there's, you know, every once in a while you'll get a patient that really just needs a hug at the end of the visit. And um, we can't do that anymore. Um, and even more basically, it's really hard to read a patient's facial expressions when they're covered up with a mask. And it's very hard um, on the flip side for them to read ours and understand what we're saying and and, and what we're feeling towards our patients. So um, that has been, I think, for a lot of us, one of the one of the bigger challenges. Certainly, there have been some efforts taken to try to humanize us a little bit more in the rooms, especially when we have a ton of garb on. Um, there's been big campaigns to make stickers that we that we wear on our chest that show what our face looks like without all of this heavy equipment. But at the end of the day, it still doesn't allow us to express some of those things that we used to be able to express without words. Yeah, yeah. I remembered one of my patients say, you, you won't even hug me or shake my hand. So, so <laughs> I said, I can't, you know. Uh, so it's really hard to explain that to the patients. But on the opposite side, though, the telemedicine, which we rapidly evolved into, like from like about 10% to an outstanding 90% of our visits are telemedicine. Tell me what the pros and cons of that telemedicine visit for you. 
Gosh, um, you know, pros, you know, safety is certainly one of them, at least from uh, protecting those of us in the clinic. Um, on the flip side, there is only so much that you can learn um, when you're in a different room. That's actually the first thing I tell my patients is that there are some risks and limitations of this. And while I'll do my best to give you guidance that's safe and accurate, we're all kind of learning this together and we might, we might miss some things. And so um, we just have to kind of recognize that um, just going into it. Uh, one of the, one of the things I really like about, uh, telehealth visits is sort of the humanizing nature that, that having these telehealth visits bring, you know, usually traditionally patients have come into your house and have seen your clinic and, and you only kind of get a little bit of a, of a brief glimpse of their personality as in their bigger worlds. But when they're on a video visit, you're looking at, you're looking at the art on their walls and seeing, you know, what interests them. You're looking at the you know, the color they chose to paint their walls. You're looking at the pets that are running around in the backyard and you get uh, a bigger, a bigger and more clear sense of who that person is. And that's been, I think, really actually fun to understand our patients a little bit more in sort of the context that they're living in. Yeah, yeah. And I, it's also nice to see their family members with them. And also you see the, the hesitance in terms of them touching their grandfather or grandmother. So it's really a very humanizing uh, time for all of us. On the other side, also, one of my challenges is really not being able to examine the patient, like the laying of the hand that we are mm -hmm. all taught in medicine. It's severely lacking. And I find myself having the patient, hey, push your left side of your abdomen. Is that very tender? Or pry your eyes open. Let me look at that on video and stuff like that. So be, we are becoming more innovative in terms of examining the patients, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. But it definitely has some challenges. There, there's definitely some limits to what you can do, but by golly, absolutely. I've had, I've had, you know, Hey, do I see somebody there in the background? Bring up, bring them over here. Bring them over here. Okay. I'm going to have them thump a, nope, a little bit higher on the back. Thump on your back. Does that hurt? Do you have any tenderness there? Okay, good, good. And there's a lot of coaching, um, um, coaching of our of our the whole family to try to get an accurate assessment of what's going on. I know, I know. I'm learning how to like doing all these gestures, like I said, uh, you know, touch your back, you know, this and that. So just to find range of motion. But uh, knowing you, Kelly, you know, I'm so excited about you sharing uh, what other things you do outside your day job. And uh, most recently, you know. We, we got an email that, oh, we, yeah, you are in New York. And tell me about the experience of your volunteerism in New York. And tell me what happened. How was that for you? Yeah. So New York was a, um, a sort of unexpected opportunity. I guess I would phrase it that way. Um, as the pandemic was, um, was coming and we were preparing for this enormous surge. Um, after a few weeks, it became pretty clear that we weren't going to see that. And in the meantime, Stanford had lost quite a bit of money <laughs> because they couldn't do a lot of the, a lot of the care that they would normally give. So they mandated that a bunch of their employees take, um, take leave. So I had uh, a couple weeks worth of PTO that I needed to use in a time where I really couldn't do anything I would usually do with my PTO. I couldn't, I couldn't travel. Um, 
And so I ended up uh, flying to New York. I had been working sort of uh, loosely with one of uh, Stanford's disaster response teams. And so had been connected with this organization that was doing relief work in New York in some of the emergency departments there that had been hit terribly hard. So I got to, um, through the, the grace of the people that I work with who were extremely supportive, who were willing to accommodate me if I had to get stuck in quarantine for a couple of weeks after I got back, um, I got to go to New York for a couple of weeks and work in a underserved hospital there that had been hit exceptionally hard. Um, when you saw sort of the worst of the worst videos of what was going on in New York, that was what this emergency department had been living um, and got to work with with their nurses in the emergency department and give them a little bit of relief from, um, from everything that they had been, had been through up to that point. Yeah. I'm sure that you were really such a, a great help for them. And uh, wow, that must have been a nice experience for you. And then another event happened with the all the fires in California and you got again, got out of your, you know, comfort zone. And then uh, actually it's not outside your comfort zone. That is within <laughs> your comfort zone. So, uh, so tell me about the firefighting stuff in, you know, up north. Yeah. So um, I have been a volunteer firefighter in my community for for maybe going on five years now, we um, there is a small um, uh, sort of rural community that I live in, and they've been uh, you know supported for for several decades by this volunteer fire fire department. Uh, my dad had been a volunteer firefighter, so I was sort of familiar with with what it involved. Um, I knew it involved a lot of jumping up at, the, at very random hours, usually very <laughs> inconvenient times to go run out and hopefully be a little helpful. So um, I got recruited pretty quickly when we moved to this community, and my husband has since joined as well. And when, when wildfires hit, we had a, we had a tremendously amazing, but unfortunately pretty destructive lightning storm that came through. We got to work really quickly and spent about 20 hours straight putting out three fires in our immediate response area and then spent the next week supporting one of the larger fire complexes in our County and in San Mateo and Santa Clara County and working to, um, yeah, working to fight that fire and 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 protect um, some people's homes in in our county. Yeah, yeah, you are certainly a role model for all of us, and I'm sure a role model for your daughter. And you know, so you have my admiration in terms of what you do outside your day job. So, I would like you to tell our listener a final message to them about COVID nineteen and what they could do. Sure. Um, I think my biggest takeaway this year um, between the pandemic, between um, seeing what nurses went through in New York, between the wildfires, um, our friends lost their home in the wildfires, um, is probably the biggest one is to be kind to each other. Um, this has been super unprecedented. <laughs> I was, no, obviously none of us have seen something like this in our lifetime. And it's it's incredibly hard. And even if we haven't had a big experience like losing our homes or losing our jobs or losing a family member. Uh, we're, we're all under a lot of stress and unfortunately our, 
our best shelves aren't always shining through. So when, when maybe we're not our best selves, uh, try to be patient with each other. Other than that, you know, I tell everybody, um, wash your hands, wear your masks, try not to socialize indoors. Um, even, even casual socialization has, has burned several of my patients. You know, I only saw a couple of people it only takes a couple of people. It's hard. And, um, yeah. And, and also it's, it is an election year. So get out and vote, make your voice heard. There's a lot, a lot of decisions, important decisions being made this year and whatever, whatever your feelings are, this is the best way that you can express them. Thank you, Kelly, uh, so much for your time today. And I'm so excited to air this podcast uh, to share your views. And I would like to welcome our colleague, Corey Alvarado. So you don't have to stay, Kelly, if you don't want to. And I'll just have a dialogue with Corey. Is that right? Completely fine. <laughs> Hello, Corey. We miss Hi, you. Kelly. I miss um, you guys too. <laughs> and I'll let you guys go. I'll give you guys big kisses. Love okay. you all soon. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. So, Corey, thank you for really connecting with us today with our podcast. And as you know, this will be aired with our first episode in terms of our podcast. And I would like to welcome you. So, Corey Alvarado is a colleague of ours. She's a medical assistant. She has a bachelor's of science in broadcasting and communication and also a master's in health administration. She's a mother and she is a wife. And it's been really, I've been so lucky to work hand in hand with Corey along the trenches. <laughs> so Corey, welcome to the show. Corey is from El Salvador, uh, was born and grew up in El Salvador until age five when your family immigrated to the United States, right? right. So, um, and you grew up in Redwood City. So uh, you were still young then. Uh, could you remember what are the challenges of being an immigrant? Absolutely. Um, thank you for having me on your show, first of all. And um, I think growing up um, as a child, you know, you don't really pay attention to a lot of the things, you know, your life is play and have fun. Um, as I grew up with my mom, my stepdad and my brother, it started to become more visible. You know, um, my mom would try to really shelter me from a lot of things that maybe she didn't think kids needed to know. But um, I remember something as simple as asking oh, why don't we travel for vacation? You know, why don't we go outside and, you know, uh, internationally? She's like, well, we just can't or we don't have money. And then as I grew up, I realized it was because, you know, our immigration status. Um, as I relate it now to, you know, healthcare, we would go to the community clinics and it was more so as a needed basis. So, you know, we didn't really have your yearly physicals and, you know, any little scratches, you wouldn't just take us. And I think it was, again, you know, the immigration status has a lot to do with it. And it affected myself in that way. Not that it was a, it's a bad thing, but as I grew up, I realized, well, you know, healthcare is like more like a, a privilege. Not everybody has it. And you, I think which eventually kind of shaped me into kind of working into healthcare and, and making sure that I, you know, did my part to help others. I by any means was not neglected by my parents or anything, but they, she, you know, they definitely tried to, to make sure that we still stayed safe to the best of their capabilities. And sometimes it wasn't necessarily always going to the doctor. It was just kind of like, you know, 
hang on, you know, I know your belly hurts, hang on, hopefully it's nothing serious and eventually it will go away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So as an immigrant, I know like I also immigrated to the United States at age 19 and I was a nurse and uh, had to go through this acclimation to the culture. And I guess for you, you immigrated at an earlier age and you were basically protected by your parents. Uh, And so I want to bring that up in terms of our discussion today, as we are doing all our projects, our research projects on COVID-19. And it's just so striking for me that most of our hospitalized patients are Latino. And you had been so helpful in terms of our project. You basically translated our survey and our instructions to the patient on how to use the false oximetry, etc. So why do you think that the Latino population are basically highly vulnerable and uh, disproportionately affected by COVID-19 and its complications? Why do you think that is? I think there's several factors. Uh, First is, you know, the their socioeconomic status is different than other cultures. Uh, sometimes in order to just have a place to live, they have to share a space with seven, eight other people, family members, you know, in order to make rent, they kind of all squish into a small space. And so that is one thing, right? It's kind of hard to maintain the cleanliness or have space or uh, things that maybe uh, people not in that situation would encounter. Uh, second of all, I think it's also, um, again, like the uh, immigration status, right? They're, they don't want to go out there and provide their name and their date of birth and their address if they fear that they might be able to, you know, get found by the government or, or whatever that case may be. And so they, they opt for staying, you know, um, as sheltered as possible in their own small community and not really going out and finding the resources or help that they may need. And I think third of all, it's also, um, I think, a lack of education. Uh, many, um, I know my grandparents themselves, they grew up uh, not needing, you know, they just fended for themselves. They figured out, well, you know, drink this, you know, well, I'll make you a tea with these special herbs and leaves and you'll get better. You don't need science. Um, And so a lot of it is passed on through generations. And so therefore it comes a point that, you know, that's all they know, you know? And so something as simple as filling out a form at a hospital becomes a challenge when there's a language barrier and some of them may, they may not have even gone to school to be able to read and write. Yeah, we're finding that. And actually, there was a learning experience for us. And it's so humbling that, you know, we proposed this project expecting a certain outcome. And the outcome that we actually found was a lot more eye-opening for us in terms of how inequality and disparity of the healthcare resources. So moving forward, what do you think would help in terms of helping this population in terms of like how could we better their health during COVID-19? Uh, like I hear about this promotoras. What is a promotora? A promotora is uh, in English because it easily translates to like a promoter. Many of them are called promotoras de salud or promoters of health. And um, they are, many times they consist of volunteers from the community um, they form a group, they get uh, usually wherever they volunteer, organizations will give them a training on how uh, on community resources and the uh, 
specific issues that that community may have. And they go out and they interact with the community on a personal level, uh, not necessarily in an office setting or a hospital setting or a clinic setting, but more so either at um, sometimes like fairs, county fairs or like community programs set up by, by the county. And they make sure that the this population knows that there's help out there, whether it's uh, help with signing up for insurance like Medi-Cal, you know, providing like vouchers for the prescription uh, drugs so that they can be cheaper or at no cost, um, ensuring that they can find uh, a doctor if needed, uh, like a primary care doctor, which is the main, if, if the patients have a primary care doctor, they're more likely to continue to have that uh, continuity of care and, and get help as needed. And make sure that they know that uh, sometimes, you know, you can be seen by the doctor and you can go and get prescriptions free of cost. It's just a matter of applying and finding the resources and um, making sure that they feel comfortable with the community, asking for help when they need to. And sometimes that's that's the biggest part. Um, even as myself, as a Latina growing up, you know, you're told you can do it on your own. You're strong enough. You don't need anybody. And so you bring that with you. But at times, specifically uh, when you need it, you need to reach out and, and ask for help. And I think it helps this population because they feel more connected. It's not a doctor telling them this. It's not, you know, a nurse. It's somebody, the community that they can relate more to. And a lot of these promotoras even have gone through that help themselves and are now giving back and making sure that um, the experience that they they had is also the experience that the, these patients or this Latino demographic can have as well. That is interesting. So you think we could uh, actually better our programs in reaching out and, and, and you know, uh, giving them or extending more resources by having promotoras. So would you think that will help in terms of their mistrust on the system? I think so. Uh, at the end of the day, I think there will always be that little bit of fear that they might, that may have trusting the healthcare system and trusting um, the government, if you will. And that may not absolutely go away, but having these people, you know, relate to them, either go to their homes if, if possible, or meeting them in a place where they feel uh, safe or secure definitely helps out. And just it's the constant, you know, verbalizing, it's okay, you'll be fine. Nobody's out to get you. We're just trying to help you get better. We're trying to make sure that your family is healthy, that you continue to stay healthy. And it's nothing more than that. And making sure that they understand that, I think, is the, the biggest uh, yeah. point to drive across. Corey, that's really very helpful. And um, before we um, finalize uh, this session, would you send us a message, like send our listeners a message uh, from you? Of course. I think during this time, you have to um, value, you know, your the, the small things, right? The time that you can spend with your families is, is huge. And also be kind to, to those around you. You don't know. Some people have lost their jobs, have lost their homes, have lost loved ones. And so you don't know what, you know, that person is going through. And so even a smile or, you know, a wave can go a long way. I know it's hard since we can't really hug or, or do much else, but sometimes, you know, just acknowledging a good morning makes people's day. I am actually excited because this is my first time that I actually get to vote in this election. And so I'm definitely going to go vote and make sure that, you know, my voice is heard. I hope to 
better our community by by voting for the the props and everything that I feel that that needs to get across. And so for for those of you that can, please do it. Um, you can vote by mail. I think you still can actually, and uh, or in person. And most importantly, make sure that you always wear your mask and wash your hands. Thank you so much for your message, Corey. And really, thank you for uh, being my guest and my podcast. And I'm so thrilled to air this. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Have a good evening. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Acast, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you on our next episode.